And welcome back to This Is Not A History Lecture, episode seven. Episode seven. Um, today is a little weird for us because we just got done recording an episode that we can use in case anything goes wrong mm-hmm. and we can't record an episode for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so this is our second round doing this and let me tell you, uh, I, uh, some podcasts do like three episodes in one day, full length episodes. And I don't know how. <laughs> I feel like I'm riding the high actually. I could do it. I feel like, but I know you're more of an introvert than I am. Um, I feel like I could do it. You'd be exhausted afterwards. But I would be so tired. Yeah. And that was a, like not a full length episode. And we both had really fun stories. I couldn't imagine doing two full, like hard story episodes. Yeah. Or, is, or, like, three? Oh, I couldn't do three. That's <laughs> partially why I'm excited. Not excited. I didn't think about it till we were doing it, but I'm glad we recorded the emergency one before this because my topic today is really sad. And as an empath, like, I hardcore would probably have a hard time getting my energy back up after I do this episode. Yeah, and that's why I asked you if you were ready to do yours earlier because yeah. another thing we've been dealing with is we were supposed to be coming to you live from two microphones. Yep. Um, but we are still coming to you live from one microphone. Yeah. <laughs> um, because apparently Blue Yeti as a company doesn't want us buying more than one of their mics. Which is weird. Which is weird because, you know, capitalism, these people want to make money, right? <laughs> um, no, they, <laughs> um, long story short, you can't have two Blue Yeti mics plugged into one computer and then do like the dual recording off of both because they all have, or like the same models have the same exact serial numbers. And uh, the only way to change that is to literally send your mic to Blue Yeti to have them have them the re <laughs> like do the whatever the register or I don't know how tech works, but uh, and so then send it back. It, you saw the electronic signatures, like yeah, that. exactly the signature. Um, and since these are not our microphones, they are the libraries. Yeah, at our school, our school has been really chill about us letting like letting us rent them, but it's been a pain. Yeah, and we can't just send their mic off. <laughs> like, okay, we're just going to rewrite the, the script on your mic. Yeah. Like, no, that's if they were our mics, I would be comfortable doing it, but we can't but do no. it. Anyway, so if you're interested in starting a podcast, keep that in mind because I'm just glad that we didn't yeah. buy two identical Blue Yeti, Blue Yeti mics and then be like, what the heck, we can't even use one yeah. of these. Although I would be willing to send one off. That, it seems like a relatively easy fix. But yeah. that's for the future. That's us. for another day. Also, if you're hearing this and you're like, no, Blue Yeti does let you do that. They've changed it. Please let us know. Please let us know because we kept finding articles from like 2014. And we really hope that they've updated it by now because what the heck. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a good time. Yeah. We don't know what we're doing. And I we let, barely even know what to Google. Yeah. So. <laughs> I let Kaylee take care of that stuff because I'm barely capable of literally running a program more difficult than Google Docs. Yeah, and like I said, I'm glad we did the more lighthearted episode. Well, my my story is pretty lighthearted, but for good reason. Um, yeah, we wanted to balance it out. Mine's... Yeah, Cass is sad, but I just couldn't do... I needed... My brain needed to, to bounce back from that because that stuff hurts my brain. Because yeah. I have a hard time doing stuff that I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. And I'm like, what are these letters? What are they... <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> Anyway, yeah. Uh, well, how was so that? Week? Was our day? How was their week? It was cool. I did find. Okay, so when we were going through collections, we were, we had some found in collections objects, which okay. for y'all who don't know, it's something you just find. 
in collection that has storage. no tags, yeah, files, yeah. anything attached to it. Yeah, you don't know provenance, you don't know where it's been, you don't know even if it's part of your system. Um, and so it was a college degree from like 1860 or something. Wow. And it was a woman's. Okay. Which, radical enough as it is, it also said mistress of science. Not a bachelor's, but a mistress, mistress of science. Mistress of science. And I want that to now be my degree. I am now a mistress of history. Um, I was going to say, you're not a mistress of science oh, because no. you had a bachelor of arts. <laughs> no, no, I meant, I just like the term mistress. So that's yeah, really interesting. We found that this week, um, which was really cool. And other than that, it's been pretty chill. Um, yeah. How about you? Um, well, it was an exciting week for me. Because I got my first shot of the COVID vaccine. Yes. I got it yesterday. The only side effect I had was I was exhausted yesterday afternoon. You're feeling pretty good now though, right? I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I've been much better today. But yesterday afternoon I was exhausted. And I'm usually always kind of tired because who isn't? But, um, <laughs> yeah, cat. One time. Okay. This quick side note. One time, Uh-oh. we were in class, Uh-oh. and Kat was like, wow, I keep getting tired, like, in the middle of the day. Is that normal? Or, is there some, <laughs> There's something wrong with me. And I looked at her and was like, Kat, you mean, like, everyone else in the world? She was like, what? No, I, I'm young. And everyone else in the class was like, no, Kat, people get tired in the afternoons. That's why five-hour energies exist <laughs> for that 2 p.m. feeling. Yeah. Anyway, five-hour energy, sponsor us. <laughs> oh, yes, please. Please do. Um, I knew someone who used to mix that with her coffee at our 2 a.m. shift. I, think I don't blame her. 2 a.m., that's rough. She saw God. <laughs> yeah. I think she put a monster in there with it and just spent the next, Ooh, like, eight that hours. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> sure she had, like, heart palpitations by the end of the day. <laughs> I bet she did. Um, yeah. But, so, anyway, what were we talking about? You got the oh, yeah. vaccine. So, I was just exhausted. That was the only side effect I have. My arm, like, injection shite, inject, injection <laughs> site does feel a little sore. Um, it kind of feels like someone punched my arm where yeah. it is. But as far as, like, arm stiffness, I think anything, that's how I felt after the meningitis one. That one. Yeah, I, think I felt that one. I, I think that's a pretty common just yeah. vaccination side effect in general. My roommate also got... Um, the same, I got the Pfizer vaccine. She also got Pfizer yesterday because our, um, our health center at, uh, I was going to tell you, I'll tell you. So she managed, she called up there because she is like one of those people who's like, I'm just going to call and ask. She called up there yesterday or the day before and was like, Hey, I'm just wondering if y'all would have any like leftover. Mm-hmm. And they told her to call Thursday. So yesterday mm-hmm. at three, like 15 and they would have a spot for her because they would have leftovers for the end of the oh, day. Yeah. And she called and she was able to go over there and get a shot just from oh, wow. leftovers. She wasn't technically qualified in like this certain yeah. round. So if you wanted to do that. I'll look into it because someone it, else in our cohort got it. Yeah. If you um, like around three o'clock, I okay. think is a good time to call. Anyway, so she got uh, the same. She got Pfizer. And she was having some body aches, but as far as that, um, she said the same kind of like arm pain that I did, but again, pretty common vaccine side effects. So like, if, that, if I have to deal with arm pain and exhaustion and I can just sleep for like 12 hours, if I can plan yeah. on like a Thursday where I, Friday, my one day off, I can just sleep all day. Like 
Yeah. So worth it to return to normal. And she did. Yeah. So call, you could call on Thursday and okay. see. Yeah. And it, that would be right after class for us. Yeah. So oh, I work till five. But my boss would totally let I, me go. I feel like you're. She would let me go. Yeah. They that's all important. have the vaccine. Yeah. Three out of the five, no, three out of the six people in our department got the vaccine. So it's like, we're really lucky. You should, yeah, you should like, because you work on Wednesday, you should say, hey, tomorrow, tomorrow. I'm going to try and see if I can make this work. Yeah. I'll let her know. Yeah. Um, good call. Yeah. So that's good information, I think. Anyway, that's a bunch of stuff about our specific circumstances. Anyway. We're just excited that yeah, we're returning to some form of normal. I know. And to like, I mean, me and Kat are hanging out right now and we hang out all the time, obviously. So I feel like it's a calculated risk we're taking. But like even us doing this is like, we're two feet apart from each yeah. other. Obviously not social distance. Well, I'm just like, you have, you have roommates. I don't. And I'm an yeah. extremely extroverted person. If y'all can't tell, Kat's an extremely extroverted. Well, just too, because we're not like following CDC guidelines. Right. Of not intermixing households. I mean, it is different because I'm just living with other people my age and not like my great grandparents. Like I would right. be at home. But for me, if I didn't have this... And, yeah, because and even our classes are spread out. We don't we like the chairs are taped off in our classrooms so that we can only sit like eight feet apart, which is fine. It's safe, but like Kaylee is my sole consistent like companion at this point. Yeah, <laughs> like and yeah, if I could, you have to have one because I genuinely, as an extrovert who needs social interaction, I would have gone mad if I didn't have you around. I know. I yeah. I, I can't imagine. People are doing it and more power. Like, that's so impressive to me because, I mean, I, you, like I said, I have roommates and I have a family that I was, you, so it's yeah. like I have people that I could talk to. And as much as I probably shouldn't, I do enjoy go thrifting and stuff. So, yeah, it's calculated risk. <laughs> Just don't get Although, honestly, I feel like you should be wearing masks at thrift stores regardless yeah. of a pandemic. Some of the stuff I'm like, mm, this is a little musty. <laughs> I've just been to work in the grocery store once every like three weeks. But I yeah. honestly like, I've been watching an unhealthy amount of Netflix to cope with it. So it's fine. Well, whatever. Aren't we all watching an unhealthy amount of Netflix anyway? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so anyway, so that's yeah. So that's the updates. Just looking for the up. Week. Yeah, and it is Friday. We're recording this. Um, my friend is coming into town this weekend, so we're not recording on Sunday. Mm-hmm. That or I'm. It's complicated. I'm going to visit them in Austin. Whatever. <laughs> um, I'm preoccupied on Sunday, so we're doing it now on Friday, breaking from the norm. Yes. Well, but enough of our rambling. Should we get into it? Yes. We, Are you ready? I am ready. Um, so I am going to be discussing the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire today. Um, a lot of y'all probably had it addressed in like high school as a fire that uh, spurred a lot of social and workers reform, which it definitely did. And I'll talk about that towards the end about the legacy and everything. But this is genuinely one of those stories that if you go really deep into it, it which I did, it, it makes me cry because... Like, the women that died in this were, like, 14 to their 20s. Yeah. They were, like, most of them were younger than us. Um, <sighs> so, like, if y'all don't want anything sad, go ahead and skip ahead to Kaylee's. It's fun. Um, I won't be insulted. I totally get that some people don't like sad things, and I get that. Um, but I think it's also a very important event in history. And I, it was, it along with the Titanic, we joked in the first episode about how I low-key have, like, trauma, like, Weird, a weird connection to like traumatic 
historical events. And this is a very traumatic historical event. And I'm not going to go into like, like deep, deep, deep tale because it, I mean, yeah, it was a fire. Yeah. It's, it's kind of gory. And I can imagine. So if you're interested in like, like I am kind of in that sort of stuff, you can go further and I'll try to warn y'all before I get to like the real nitty gritty, but it is sad. Um, and much like the Titanic, it was not, it was preventable. It was a total event cascade that if something along the chain was different, the outcome could have been so radically different for, like, so many women. Yep. Um, Just, I mean, I know a little bit about it, but I know it's just stuff as simple as a door being unlocked. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, So, yeah, if you skip my portion, I will not be offended. And for context, this is 1911. It is a year before the Titanic sinks, actually. Um... New York is crammed full of people. Like, the population there has exploded due to the huge influx of immigration. And to me, it's a fascinating mix of culture and ideas. It started to move away from the original immigration population. And it's a lot of, like, non-English-speaking European countries at this point. Mm -hmm. That also means they're bringing a lot of really cool cultures and ideas. And a lot of them are still practicing those cultures and ideas. And it's making New York a fan, like a, a really interesting experiment of... Yeah, it's a melting pot. Yeah, it's it's the ideal American yeah. melting pot of like... Yeah, that what we're supposed to be in. It's the first, I think, real test of can we live like this with each other? Yeah. And, and... and to be fair, a lot of the whole concept we have of like immigrants and not working together comes because they all came, so many of them came in through Ellis Island and New York was so crowded that it, yeah. it in some areas became a real fight for commodities and That's like true. And survival. And it became a competitive thing of like immigrants and, and some immigrants would come and work for a little while and they'd take that money and go back home because yeah. and America was a land of prosperity. Yeah. And, and people, people still do that. Yeah. And uh-huh. a lot of people though didn't like it. And they're like, they're taking American jobs and then leaving. But like none of these other Americans are going to be doing these jobs in the sweatshops and the factories. Yeah. Just like today. Yeah. Like, Oh, the immigrants are taking our jobs. So it's like, okay, get out in the field and pick fruit. Yeah. Well, even when people make fun of like low paying workers, like retail and stuff, or they say like, you don't yeah. want to be stuck in a retail job forever. And I'm like, Oh, flipping burgers. You're going to get $10 for flipping burgers. And it's like fun fact. A lot of people make their living that way, and if you're going to insult it, you can't enjoy the commodities that come with yeah, it. Yeah, you've never worked a minimum wage job, and yeah. they suck. They do. I promise you that minimum wage jobs are working ten times harder than your cushy executive job. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, and you don't get to, like, make fun of people flipping burgers and then go to, like... Yeah, and go and through the one. drive-thru and, like, no. be like, why is my burger taking two minutes longer than normal? Yeah. yeah. That's our... That's... That's our rant for the day, guys. Um, <laughs> I say as there's probably like many more rants. Oh, I'm going to rant in my... Well, not rant, but it, there's some connections yeah. to me made to yeah. modern day. Um, but it is it is really, really crowded. Between 1910 and 1915, more than 15 million immigrants came to the U.S. Wow. Yeah. Three-fourths of New York City is immigrant population. Wow. It's a lot. And they came in through other places. Half of my... Like, the Wendish side of my family came through Galveston. Oh, yeah. And then, like, someone way up on my grandma's side came through Ellis Island. So, like, uh-huh. you know, it... Yeah, Galveston was a big... Huge, especially for Germans. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, I mean, before the storm of 1900... Oof. That's an episode... You have that down? Oh, yeah. That's going to be an episode in okay, the future. Good. Um But, yeah, if you don't know, like, Galveston, Texas was on the route to be... Like, they called it the New York of the South. It was going to be just as big. And, in fact, it probably, if the storm hadn't 
hit, it probably would engulf and kind of connected with Houston by now. Yeah. Just because how much land mass it would probably cover. Yeah. Um, but nature said, no, I guess we can only handle one New York, which honestly, that's fair. Probably a good call for <laughs> yeah. Texas. But it's weird because a lot of Texas is wired by their events. Like, I mean, Waco and the tornado, that's why it stopped developing like Dallas. There have been some accidents with the rivers and stuff like that that other towns just weren't able to recover from. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's crazy because... These towns could be so prominent, but it's just natural disaster. And I'm sure it happens a lot. And I can't imagine, like, in the Midwest, like, how many tornadoes took stuff out, too. Oh, yeah. So, (sighs) yeah. Um, They're coming from all over the place, but New York is so concentrated that tenement housing is really common. And if y'all don't know what tenement housing is, it's the almost... It's cruel. It's shoving entire families into one bedroom like and being so expensive it's a lot like new york is now honestly but to the absolute extreme but living conditions are awful we're talking yeah, about bathrooms we're, we're talking like yeah literally one room apartments no windows no mm-hmm. way to get out yeah yeah this is also i mean not this story specifically but this time in history is a lot of the reasons why there's such thing as tenants rights yeah and like building codes and you have to have windows and rooms and stuff like that Oh, this event spurred so many building codes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, if y'all are interested or ever in New York, visit the Tenement Museum. Um, I think it's on, like, Orchard Street or something like that. But it's really cool, and it, it shows what life was like in the tenements. Um, but Google it. It'll teach you a lot about how lucky we are to have small apartments still. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, this apartment compared to what I would have been living in if I was alive during the time is insane. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the people in these concentrated tenement areas are factory workers and a lot of it's grouped by like the the communities grouped together so there was like a place called little germany in new york and it was populated mostly by german people and so the factories in that area would usually have something to do with that population and their specialty and so yeah yeah and we still have that today i mean Mm -hmm. we have i mean i'm from houston so there are parts of houston that are where Mexican people live, where Chinese people live, where mm-hmm. Indian people live, where black people live. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just, you know, you live with who can relate to you and who... Mm-hmm. And in theory, and then, it, and would then stuff so, like, it would be so good if we were better at intermingling, but yeah. America's not very good at supporting ideas yeah. coming together. And even though Houston, I think, is like literally considered the most diverse city in the world... Is it really? Yeah. Um, it's like Houston has the diversity goals that like everyone wants really? to meet because it's... 25% white, 25% black, 25% um, Hispanic, and 25% Asian. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, and even though it's so technically diverse, you know, you if you're from Houston, you know this. There are parts of... There are... There's, like, really, a, you can't get away from intermixing, but there are significant towns that are, like... Or significant parts of the oh, town like where... Oh, rich white people. And, yeah, yeah, and this is where the Mexicans live. Like, I'm from Pasadena in southeast Houston. You know, that's, like, more where the Mexicans live, which is fine. I love it because you can have some good food. <laughs> um, but then over in West Houston is more of where, like, Asian communities live. So, huh. yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting. But yeah. when you think about practically, like, there's, you know, you have just the services that are particular to your culture... Like, like, like Chinatown. Yeah, like Chinatown, like having, you know, grocery stores that are specific because, you know, everyone knows like Asian grocery stores. Yeah. Because you can only get certain things there. Just like in Mexican grocery stores, you can only get certain things right. there too. 
So I understand why you would want to live with... And especially for immigrants, like brand new first-gen immigrants oh, yeah, who, who want to be near their culture. And can't speak English. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. That part, too. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's a reason why this, like, has lasted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, you gravitate towards people who are like you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which is both a blessing and a curse to have that <laughs> around. Yeah, well, it's a curse when one group thinks they're better, better than, than everyone. <laughs> Man. That's another day. Uh, okay. Um, so this factory is, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory is largely staffed by Italian and Jewish women. Okay. Um, it's kind of in that middle area where it's, that's the demographic who can get there. Um, it's owned by Max Blanc and Isaac Harris. Uh, it's originally called the Ash Building. I believe that it's been renamed the Brown Building now and it's owned by New York, uh, the, the university there. Um, but it's a 10 story building and they own the top three floors. So the lower floors are used for other things, but the top three floors are eight, nine, and 10. And it's at the corner of green street and Washington place in Manhattan. It's still standing. Actually, you can still okay, go I was see gonna this. Ask. I so the factory is in the top three floors. Yes. Okay. Um, I've actually seen this building. Okay. When we went to New York, uh, once I like pulled my parents all the way down to that yeah. part of Manhattan and I was like, I know where we are. And I looked around and I realized we were on green street and I was like, Oh my gosh. And I made them keep walking until we could find Washington and green street. So they were like, what the hell are you doing? Cat? You're just walking. I was like, I know what's here. I know what must be nearby. And I like was adamant that I would go see it because yeah. I, like I said, this was one of my early first exposures to like history, history. And uh-huh. I, I, I read a book called triangle and I think it was like a Haddock's book or something like that. And it told the story it was like, a, I mean, I was in middle school, so it was for middle schoolers, but like it told the story of three women who were caught in the fire. Wow. And like not all the characters survived. And it was like really <laughs> impactful to like read that yeah. book. And yeah, so I was like really interested in this as a topic as a child. And I made my parents go all the way out there. Um, <laughs> but it's exactly what you think of a factory working environment in this time period. The working areas are just long long tables like it's big bulky furniture it's heavy it's hot it's it's a room full of the sounds of machines and sewing and most of these girls are teenage girls so the victims of this are between 14 the two youngest girls who died in this were 14 Mm. and about 23 years old but the oldest one was a 43 year old woman Wow. So, like, you've got all age groups, but these factories relied heavily on children. I am talking children far below, like, the legal age. I think the youngest worker here was 12, but she didn't die, I think. So, like, wow. imagine what you were in middle school being <sighs> caught in this event, and it's just makes yeah. it all that more dramatic. Um, Yikes. In Factories are 12-hour work days every day. This specific shop, we're talking, like, 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., they're getting paid less than $15 a week. We're talking sometimes even $5 a week, which for like for us would probably be about I was going to say do you want to do the inflation? <sighs> yeah, go ahead and calculate it, but I'm I'm willing to say I'm willing to say it's about uh 150 to $200 a week for us. Yeah, that seems right. Hold on, I'm pulling it up. Um in 1911, 1911, yeah. How much was it? Um, the average it could be f- between like five and fifteen. So let's go with seven. That's seven. a little more on par with what. Okay, well, it's not letting me go lower than nineteen thirteen. Yep, around two hundred dollars. Oof. Yeah. A week. So two hundred dollars a week for New York pricing on homes and necessities and stuff. So it's it's not it's bad. It's a bad condition, and they're drastically exploiting workers here. 
Um, the la- it was so bad that the Ladies' Garment Workers Union tried to sh- go on strike in 1909. But if you know anything about strike culture, especially in America, the owners just hired cops to arrest them and they yep. paid off the authorities to ignore them, hired scabs to yeah, work because instead. Employees are replaceable. Yeah. I mean, they were especially replaceable back then. but Because mm-hmm. so many people needed work. Yeah. And well, it's true now, too. Yeah. But in 1909, they, like, the, the cops they hired, like, broke these women's ribs. Oh, my God. Like, they, they were aggressively violent. Of course. Drivers. Because protest against capitalism and the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And so there's... Again, another episode. Oh, <laughs> uh, Yeah. Um, Maybe. Uh, we'll see that theme again. <laughs> yeah. It'll show up in history because history has a terrible history of exploiting people. Um, yeah. And there's supposed to be multiple working elevators, but of course they're not all working. Um, there's two staircases down to the street. One is locked from the outside because the the foremen and managers were so worried that girls would steal stuff and like sneak it out under their clothes and they didn't want the women taking bathroom breaks outside because there weren't bathrooms inside. Oh my God. They like, they just locked it so that women couldn't leave without them checking their purses. Um, (laughs) Oh my God. Like, okay. I should stop talking because I've interrupted you so much. No, but the bathroom break thing in particular reminds me a lot of um, high school. No, of Amazon. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh, and having like three cameras watching you to make sure you're not stealing and like being productive and oh, God. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> again, history repeats itself. Mm-mm. Hopefully it, this never happens again. Oh, I, I, I mean, there's reasons why again, because this happened. Yeah. I'm not saying something similar couldn't happen, but the hopefully is it is easy to ignore protocols and let this happen again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the other staircase only opens inward. Just so y'all have that in mind. There are also glaring safety violations that even by this time period standards are like complete bull. Um, but fixing all of these things would cost money and require a reform, something that factory owners are not a fan of. And like the sprinklers don't even work in here. And Blanc and, and Harris don't give a shit. Sorry, I shouldn't be cussing. It's going to get bad enough later where I'll probably end up cussing again. But they had three suspicious fires before that all (laughs) happened before the workday opened. And you know what happened for each of them? They got insurance money. Oh. So they were... And it wasn't uncommon. So you mean suspicious as in... Yes. Okay. As in, they set these fires to collect insurance money. When certain fashions would go out of style, they'd burn the factory. Oh. And it was not uncommon. (gasps) People would do this. They would burn stuff to get insurance money. And so they didn't want to have, a, like, you know, sprinklers and preventative features because what if they needed insurance money again? You know, they didn't put it in this building because it wasn't... Yeah, because insurance money was more more, mm-hmm. more important to them than the safety of their employees, especially because the, the safety of their employees is meant spending money. Oh, and wait till you hear how much money they make off of this tragedy. Oh, my God. It's disgusting. <laughs> I'm going to be so mad. And, yeah, and it's not unknown that fires are a huge issue. Cotton mills, especially, like, natural textiles, it is a huge issue. You are not supposed to smoke in factories because fires are just way I mean, it makes happen. sense. It's cotton, and it's been it's, sitting there for forever, so it's yeah. probably dry. And-, mm-hmm. and it does happen. On Saturday, March 25th, 1911... It's about 4.40 in the afternoon. They are, like, 20 minutes away from, like, leaving for the day. They're so close. 
They were so freaking close. And the Ash building is crammed full of about 500 to 600 workers between the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors. The 8th floor is a lot of the cutting room, so there's a lot of scrap fabric, just dry scrap fabric sitting around and patterns laying out, which is just dry paper that's going to go up like tinder. And on the 8th floor, a rag bin catches fire, um, and these are the cutting tables where the stuff is hanging on lines above them. Every, like, so the bin down below, it's, they think it was a worker who was probably smoking. And a lot of the men were working the cutting tables. Like, mm. the few men that worked in this factory, they worked the cutting tables mostly. And they think that someone was smoking and didn't fully get the cigarette out and threw it in the bin. And mm. the thousands, and I'm, I'm not going to say thousands of scraps from hours of days of not emptying these trash bins goes up in absolute inferno. And the whole floor takes minutes to catch fire. Between, yeah, I can't even imagine how fast it would go up. And between what's hanging above them, <sighs> scattered on the floor beneath their feet, the women are wearing these fibers. They're, and yeah. The stuff that women put in their hair at this time period is also extremely flammable. <laughs> Everything that these people wore and is did flammable. was flammable. Yeah. And it, it infuriates me that someone thought that smoking was more important than this. But the equipment is bulky, so the women can't just run through this room. It's cramped, it's tight, and there's a very narrow hallway that leads to the elevators. And it's, it's not enough space for all the women to get away from the fire. One of the managers runs for the fire hose. The water valve is rusted shut, and the fire hose itself has so decomposed that it wouldn't have worked anyway. Oh my god. And guess who looked over that because they didn't want full safety features in case they ever needed to burn their factory <laughs> Oh my god. There was a worker on the eighth floor who managed to call up with, it's like a phone line just connected upwards, and they called the tenth floor to warn them up there that there's a fire. There is no way to let the woman on the ninth floor know. So the first time they realize what's going on is when the fire climbs up the stairwell and reaches them. Oh my god. And since, unfortunately, the floor that caught fire is the eighth floor, everything above them is going to go. Yep. If it had been the ninth floor there would have been so much more of a chance of these women making yeah. it out on the eighth, on the eighth floor. Um, so the eighth floor, they run for the elevators. There's that tiny little hallway, and they're, like, crushing each other, trying to get to it. They can only fit 12 people at a time in these elevators, max, mm. on a good day. And the operators keep trying to come back again and again and again, but he can only make a few trips before the heat and fire destroys the mechanisms, and he can't get it to work. Wow. And it stops working when it's down below. So some of the girls try to climb down the shaft or slide down the elevator cables. Oh, no. And if you know anything about how hot metal gets and how quickly it gets hot, they, they couldn't hold on to these cables. They just dropped 10 oh. floors. And he, the elevator operator realized he couldn't get the car back up because the weight of bodies on top of it. Oh, my God. Yeah. And a passerby on the street sees smoke. And they call at 4.45. So about five minutes later, they realize there's something going on. Some of the girls try to take the stairwells out, but the Green Street exit is blocked by fire, so they can't get to it. And that, oh, that staircase is pushing the fire upwards to the ninth story. And the Washington staircase is locked, so the women try to get there and just end up crushing each other on the stairwell where they oh burn alive. Oh, my God. Uh, 
The foreman who had the key to the door already escaped the building. Are you kidding me? He left them there. Oh my god. And the women are like, there's a fire escape. There's supposed to be two, at least two or three on this building, but there's one. The women start to climb out onto the fire escape, and it's so thin that they can probably fit a single file line at most. It would have taken half an hour or so to evacuate these full buildings anyway by the fire escape. And so it's full of, of all these women. And it may, some people suspect that it already had breaks in it or something, but it gets hot and it gets too hot and there's too many women on it. Oh, no. It twists and it drops women 100 feet down onto the concrete. Oh, my God. It just collapses under them. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a few workers on the upper floors, um, especially those on the top floors like Blanc and Harris, who own the building because that's where their offices are, they're able to climb out onto the roof of the neighboring buildings. Um, there's a law library next door, and some accounts say that the students saw the fire, and while some got the books out of the building, others got a ladder to help people off of the ash building and onto their building. Um, both of the owners had their children with them that day. Oh my god. And they managed to escape along with some of the administrative people from that floor. Um, the, defi- the fire department is able to get there relatively soon, but I say relatively because it's 1911, and yeah, it with phones the way they are and everything, it just yeah yeah. And they they bring out the ladders. The ladders reach to the middle of the sixth and seventh floor. I was gonna say they're not gonna reach far enough, are they? They, they can't get to the woman. They watch as a girl tries to jump from the eighth and catch the ladder, and she misses. Oh my god! Yeah, um, and the water pressure in their fire hoses isn't good enough, and they can't get to the fire, and so the girls start jumping, because. That's the choice you have. Yeah. And some of them are already on fire because of their clothing and hair. And so they're just, they're, they're jumping. They're making that choice. And they're falling on the fire hoses so that the firefighters can't get any closer and try to get up. And it's making it dangerous for firefighters to get near the building because the bodies are just, like, they keep coming. And they pull out nets trying to hopefully catch the woman. But there was a... There, it doesn't do much good, and these a couple women jump together, and they tear straight through it. Ugh. Um, the first person to jump, they think, was a man who, who made that choice first, but then there's an account that soon after, a man and a woman kissed and jumped together. So, oh, my God. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. There's a woman who was down she she wrote out in a journal entry or a letter um and she said that the people on the street that of the people on the street quote women were hysterical scores fainted men wept as in paroxysms of frenzy they hurled themselves against the police lines so like there's thousands of people that have time to get here to watch this and yeah, none of them can do anything it's new york it's can, crowded what are they what can you do like you oh just my God. watch as people jump and it <sighs> it's awful because i think of 9-11. The Falling Man. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I think of. And William Gunn Shepard is a reporter. His full account is on the Cornell Archive site that I found. And I, like, read his full account. And I was crying by the end. So, like, if you want to go hear about it, you can. Um, but he explains that there was, like, there were people trying to help the girls. That, like, at first people thought below that they could help or get upstairs or do something. And that... Towards the end, there was a young man that would 
help them jump. That he climbed out on the windowsill and helped toss them away from the building so that at least they would get away from the heat. And he would just throw them one after another. And he kissed a woman and then he jumped himself. And the reporter said that I learned a new... This is a little harder to hear, so skip ahead a few seconds if you want. But he said, I learned a new sound that day. A sound more horrible than description can picture. The thud of a speeding, living body on a stone sidewalk. I remember the great strike of last year in which these same girls had demanded more sanitary conditions and more safety precautions in the shops. These dead bodies were the answer. It's so frustrating that that's what it takes for change to be made. Yeah, someone has to die or a horrible accident has to kill so many people. These people are so intent on making money that it takes hundreds of people dying mm-hmm. because they children. refuse. Children dying. <laughs> yeah. Because they just refuse to give people human fucking rights. Yeah. No, it's disgusting. Like, it's oh my God. absolutely disgusting. And in 18 minutes, 146 people are dead. Oh my God. It takes 18 minutes for all of this to happen. Most of them are, like I said, kids. They're, they're children. 49 burn to death or are suffocated by smoke. 36 are laying dead at the bottom of the elevator shaft. And 58 decided that jumping was better than burning. Oh my god. Two of them die later from injuries sustained in the fire. And some accounts said that, they, that when firefighters tried to wash out the building, it, it was just red with blood. Like the sidewalks were just bodies and just piled on top of each other from jumping on top of each other. Families can't identify the women because they're so badly burned. They're yeah. so badly, they hit the pavement so hard. There's no dental records. They're just beyond recognition. So not all of them get claimed. There are six women that no one can ever identify. They tried to set up, not even triage. They knew that these women were gone or they couldn't be helped. So they went to a nearby pier and just laid out the bodies for the public to try and come claim these girls. And some of them, like, they're they're young, but they're immigrants. So these are, like, single women yeah. who had to work because they have no means. They don't have family there to claim them. Yeah, and that's what's frustrating, too. It's not like it could be avoided. Like, yeah. oh, just get another job. Like, these people need... They had to do it. They, yeah. And they're, like, they don't... They don't have anyone to take care of them. If they did have roommates, those roommates are going to eventually hear around town what happened, and they're going to have to go look through the bodies to see if they can find their friends. And April 5th, about 10 days later, there's a 100,000-person procession, in large part led by the women's union workers. They follow the hearses that carry the bodies along Fifth Avenue. And it it becomes another push for these women like for these union workers like look at what happened when you don't yeah Yeah. and the factory owners are charged with manslaughter (laughs) but um the trial is mostly just the defense discrediting women who come in and testify about what happened during the fire and about the conditions they spend and they say that their stories are too basically rational and too rehearsed and that it's all fake what? And so you know what happens? They don't get convicted. They don't get convicted. They of course get they don't. Fucking convicted. Of course they don't. There's fined seventy five dollars for each life lost. Seventy five dollars. Guess that's what your life means. Yep. To oh, but insurance pays them out sixty thousand dollars, which is the equivalent of four hundred dollars a person. Oh my god. They profit off of it. 
they make money from killing all of these women. $60,000 $60, in 1913, because that's uh, how far back we can go. Don't tell me. Oh, God. Is in 21 money. No. $1.6 million. No, it's not. That makes me so mad. Yeah. Oh the, my the transcripts God. are available, too, if you want to go read. Like, it's revolting. And the American government now, like, OSHA itself, like, exists partially because of this. The American government has a whole webpage dedicated to it. And the reason I did it this week is because this Thursday, after this is published out to, out to Spotify, um, March 24th, it'll be a Thursday this year, I believe. Is it's a Wednesday. 100, is it Wednesday? It's Wednesday. It's, a hun- it's the 110-year anniversary of this. Yeah. So... These these women would have had children and and grandchildren and great grandchildren by now. <sighs> they would have had lives. This is why it's so infuriating that so many Americans are so anti-union. Yeah. When all unions do, I mean, there are they some. There are bad. There are corrupt unions. There are, but in general, they're meant to protect people. They're meant to demand. That humans be treated as more than just robots in a factory. And it's a democratic process. You vote in unions. You, you yeah. In, you're supposed to at least like yeah. Like you said, there's some that aren't as effective. But like, it's in this. If they had just listened to the unions, listened to the strikers, actually updated their freaking safety cared, violations, cared about people. Yeah, total event. Ca- not even an event cascade like the Titanic where everything went wrong one after each other. Each of these was it foreseeable was, and preventable, and they knew it was an issue beforehand. Titanic, they didn't quite realize that the unsinkable yeah. ship could sink. Yeah, because they had too much faith. But this was, it was almost intentional. Yeah. They, they wanted that fire to happen. They just yeah. didn't know that there would be women inside when it did. Yep. And it's, Jesus. it just radicalized how the Industrial Revolution, like, because the Industrial Revolution happened. But this changed the concept of factory work, and especially for children, child labor laws, abuse of employees, unions, hiring scabs. These are all modified because of this. I mean, I, I don't know if this is directly because of this, but every establishment has the, these doors will remain unlocked Yeah. during business hours. And I've always thought of triangle shirtwaist just because of the locked, the locked doors. The locked doors. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, and... It's everything from required fire sprinklers to having consistent checks, fire extinguishers being checked. Like, all of these rules in some way connect back to, to triangle. And, and again, it's so, it's so frustrating that this had to happen yeah. in order for those rules. There's no reason. And, what's, and like you said with, like, Amazon and everything... And repeating itself is one thing, but there are factories like this in other parts oh, of the world. Oh, absolutely. Like, we'll rag on America all we want, but I full well know that Americans, whether they know it or not, are taking advantage of this type of condition in other factories. Well, you hear about it. I feel like there's at least one a year of a factory exploding or a factory mm-hmm. collapsing and hundreds of people dying. And and there are people who don't have the option not to work there. Exactly. Just like this. And... You know, and it's so such a dilemma because, you know, as much as you want to shop ethically and sustainably mm-hmm. and stuff, it's so expensive and mm-hmm. it's it's just, yeah. you know, it's part of living in... In a country that exploits others. Yeah, the way that this country yeah. does. And Which is why, well, you thrift as much as you can. I yeah. sew my own as much as I can or I'll take in thrift clothes because, like, I... Or my sister's hand-me-downs, you don't have the luxury of having older sisters, but, like, yeah. I... I wear my mom's clothes. 
I'm pretty sure these are her pants right now. I mean, they're cute pants. Sweatpants. <laughs> but, I mean, there's memorials for these women, for the unions, and Frances Perkins, we read a thing about her in undergrad. Um, yeah. And she she would become Secretary of Labor under FDR, was there that day on the street with the thousands of New Yorkers who just watched it happen without being able to do anything. And she was a huge advocate Hence the Secretary of Labor. Yeah, it makes and sense. she f- said she found her calling that day at that event was like she realized like you can't let that happen. You can't just sit by. And it wasn't until 2011 when a amateur genealogist and historian finally identified identified the six victims. He went wow. through their genealogy and managed to find out who they were. And they're buried together at a memorial in New York. And the it's like it's like a woman kneeling. It's a statue. It's it's really mm. beautiful, but. Like I said, Cornell has an entire archive of primary sources, secondary sources, people who survived talking about running out of the building and, like, a little boy who was looking for his dad because his dad was at work with him. And finally, he runs all the way home, talks to his mom, doesn't tell his mom what happened because he doesn't want her to worry, and then runs back to find his dad and then does find his dad. Like, they both survived. Okay. But, like, there's plenty of stories on there about women (sighs) who didn't either. You know, who went in with their friends that day and didn't make it out. And yeah. It's, if you want to go read them, it, it makes you very empathetic to like the time period because you realize this was a genuine threat to so many people. Work to conditions. To so many people. It's a hard part of history, but it's an important part of history because we're supposed, in theory, we're supposed to learn from our mistakes. Yeah. So Cornell Archives has a lot of resources on it. Also, if you're a teacher or something, they have resources on how to teach it with making it, you know, a story about human beings, not just about a little event in history. Yeah. So. And I think that's what, you know, I, I struggle with a lot too, is events in history being portrayed as events in history and yeah. not connecting to the actual people who yeah. went through it. And I think a lot of people have a hard time with that in history because it's just presented as events and not human beings going through this well, stuff. And it's like that concept of like what makes a martyr versus a yeah. victim. What makes a tragedy versus an incident. What makes, because when you talk about like, the Holocaust, mm-hmm. for me growing up, that was like six million. That's a number. That's yeah. that's not faces. That's a number. And that's an a event. number. And in a way, it's like the defense mechanism because if you were to sit down and process what it means for six million people to mm-hmm. die, and that's like when I was in an undergrad, like there were days when I, I it was a, like I didn't. I'm not even like a foremost scholar on a subject. I have not dedicated my whole life to this. You know, it's but it's like. There are plenty of times just reading accounts of people that you're... It's, like, striking, and you realize one person's account has the ability to completely destroy you for days. To just... That's all you can think about. You can... The pictures are all you can think about. And then you're like, now imagine that six million times over. Six million times. And not to mention the people who were affected by the war, who lost soldiers that were family members. Like, history is unfathomable. We do it today, too, when we talk about shootings and stuff. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. You, like if, unless you say their names and you know their stories and it's a small enough group of victims that you can individually look at them other than that, like, and we're talking about this the week after Atlanta, Atlanta. and uh, I hate to say it, but that was just eight people. And the fact that I have to say just when, so, you know, we had shootings yeah. where it's killed 50 people in it. And these and all of those people are worth so much more than just being a part of an eight person thing. But it's, it's I know it's, it, it is a defense mechanism, and it is. Use and, it. and so, if you're teaching history, it can be so hard 
to really look at these events and empathize with these women and read the details. But that's that's what I think history sometimes calls on us to do is to really understand like they weren't just a means to an end to get better. Yeah. Care. These were these were people that had lives and friends, engagement rings on their fingers that were found on the sidewalk after they jumped. Like they these were And as hard like as hard as it is you have to sit down and do that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you even have if you, to sit down and yeah. hear the stories, hear the personal accounts and like really sit with it. And it's, you know, it's not something that I do enough and it's, yeah. Like Kat said, it's. Well, like I didn't get really involved in like social justice stuff until I joined a, that program in an undergrad and B when I really started my research on the Holocaust, because I realized like it took me reading those firsthand accounts to realize this is not something you just walk away from. This should impact me so much. The suffering of people in the past it has the power to spur me to do better, bigger things with my life and to care about these issues. And that's what it took for me to really be opinionated about those issues because for a long time, politics weren't interesting to me. And then all of a sudden, I realized how easy tragedy is. Yep. And how preventable. Yeah. <laughs> like, and you care more about how it many you... lives are lost because people in Congress can't stop arguing. Yeah, and you care more about those issues when you care more about these people who died. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you know we're in the middle of a pandemic, and we're in a state where our governor just lifted the mask mandate because he's worried, and the yeah, you know the regulations for businesses because he's worried about the economy. And again, it's money over people's lives. Yeah. And reputation in his case. Reputation in political Which career. Which after Snowstorm, Brendan, Brendan Urie. Brendan Urie. After Snowstorm, okay. Urie, he's not getting that reputation back. Yeah. It's just so upsetting to see people continuously placing things like money. Yeah. And it all comes down to money. And this is, yeah. It's age old. Like I said, it's 110 years in a few days, and we are still having this discussion. We are still questioning workers' rights, and it shouldn't be a question. It should be no. a statement, period, done. Yeah. Well, <sighs> on that. Really dark on y'all there for a second. Yeah, and it's, uh, like I said, like it's important to have these conversations. And like we said when we did Donner Party, not episode, every episode is going to be a fun little. Something special yeah. because history sucks and there's a reason why we need to remember it. And mm-hmm. it's for this exact reason. Um, but I think that was a great job. Good job, Kat. Thank you. Um, I tried to do those women justice, but, you know, you almost can't. Yeah. And if you had gone into, you know, personal stories and you you took – that was – we're at 50 minutes now. So Oh, gosh. Sorry, yeah, guys. So, um, so, like, if you had gone into, like, personal accounts, we would be here all day, unfortunately. Yeah. But – yeah. Well, great job. Thank you. Um, we're going to brighten up your day a little bit with Kaylee's story. Now we are flipping 180 degrees. That's probably good. Our viewers are going to be very upset with us if we don't. <laughs> yeah. We have this uh, pre-agreed arrangement. If either one of us want to do a tragedy, the other, one has, the other do... one has to do something nice and fun. Yeah. Except um, for the Mishap on the Mountains episode. we There was no way we weren't going to do that theme together. Oh, yeah. No, but that was just irresistible. Um but we have to do something lighthearted, yep. and today I have something lighthearted for you. Um, so hopefully we can pull ourselves back out of that rut that um, the capitalist world put us in. <laughs> um, so Hello. today I am doing the infamous War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938. So 
War of the Worlds. It has, uh, we obviously know it most recently because of the movie in 2005. Yep. With those big creepy guys and the noises they make, which is honestly pretty cool. I enjoyed <laughs> that movie. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but the idea of World of the Worlds started off in um, 1897, and this was a book by H.G. Wells, who is most known for World of the Worlds, but also has other books that he's relatively famous for. Um, he was a horror writer. And this book was actually published serially, so uh, it was published, like, chapter by chapter. And Wattpad before Wattpad was a thing. Right, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Author's note. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, in 1987, or I always do that. I always freaking flip the eight and the nine. It's okay. 1897. And Pearson's Magazine in the UK and Cosmopolitan Magazine in the US, this was published. And then eventually it was, once it was finished, it was compiled into a complete volume and published in 1898. Dickens did that, right? Charles Dickens? Yeah, Charles Dickens, which is, if you're wondering, that's why he talks so freaking much. Because he was paid by the word. Word and not the, And not like the page count or whatever. So he... Talked a lot. I mean, he knew how to play that system, though. Like, uh, I can't say that I blame him, oh, yeah. but still, I do blame him because now I have to read him in my freshman year English class. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> Fortunately, me had no idea what was going on. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, compiled and, fu- and published in 1898. And what was significant about uh, World of Worlds by H.G. Wells is that it is the first published story about an alien invasion. Ooh. All right. I mean, obviously, aliens are very pop culture now and have yeah. been since War of the Worlds. Um, uh, also, this book wasn't just about aliens. It contained theme contained themes. Uh, well, I'm not even themes. Literally, society collapses. I mean, the aliens invade, and then the whole world goes to crap. Talk about so, ahead of your time. Yeah. So, and I was listening to a podcast talk about this um, that. Just so I could, like, get, like, a generic feel for the story. And they, they pointed out, like, in this time in 1898, people were still very bound by social codes. And yeah. almost all of their lives were controlled by these social codes. So having a story where society collapses yeah. is pretty impactful and yeah. pretty scary. Um, and so also in the book was themes, and this is not explicit, but it's kind of... Um, guessed that H.G.O.L.S. was aiming at this, but it also talked about animal treatment because uh, mm. the aliens treated humans the way humans treat animals in the real world. Huh. Uh, That's so interesting. It was supposed to talk about animal treatment, which, you know, if you... Considering 1898, especially, like, the meat packing industry, you yeah. know, um, the jungle wouldn't come out until, until 1905, 1906. Yeah. Oh, Sinclair. Yeah. Upton Sinclair. Yeah. So we're still dealing with some of those <laughs> not so nice things. So that's basically where the story comes from. So 40 years later in 1938, and since Kat did this, I'm going to do it too. Okay. Let's situate ourselves in 1938. Okay. We are pretty far into the Great Depression. Things are maybe looking up, but not really. And they wouldn't really look up until the war starts, unfortunately. Financially. Financially. <laughs> things financially. Don't, things don't start looking up until much later. Let me but... tell you, wars make money. Um, oh, especially for Americans. Yes. So, 1938, we've been in the Great Depression for going on 10 years now. People seek 
uh, entertainment sources as a way of escape. So mm-hmm. movies, radio, that kind of stuff. We still do. <laughs> we still do. Radio is uh, like really starting to take off as its own medium. People are really into because it was in their homes. You know, it was they were listening to the radio all the time, and newspapers were. <laughs> Newspapers obviously are still around, but they're kind of struggling with their first real competitor. Yeah. Um, news-wise. So that's kind of... Uh, war has not started yet, but there are some very real rumblings of it, especially mm-hmm. in Europe. And yeah, I mean, that's what's going on. So, 1838, October 30th, Orson Welles and his radio company, or his theater company... Um, who do radio shows, the Mercury Theater, air the broadcast of their War of the Worlds. So, as a little background, Orson Welles is only 23, and like I said, he is the director of a small radio theater company, and him and his theater company had been doing small little radio-adapted theatrical performances for a few months now on CBS. And since CBS has been around for forever, <laughs> they did start off as a radio company. <laughs> That's weird to think yeah, about. Yeah, it is weird to think about. And I think NBC, too, is... They were originally yeah. broadcasting for yeah. radio, yeah. So, uh, like I said, they just do plays, and most of these plays were traditional plays so far. Um, stuff like, I think was mentioned, like... Uh, I forget. Anyway, your basic, you know, Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare... Those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Your generic plays, it can be easy enough to do over the radio when people were listening. So they probably knew these stories pretty well already. So it was just, you know, they would just add a little spice to it. Maybe have some orchestra playing in the background and some, like, sound effects. Where Have you ever seen Annie when they do the the radio broadcast portion? That's what I think of. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's... I'm going to watch that Yeah, and, like, do the, like, on the board with... Just the tap shoes, and they're not even wearing them. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. The Foley artists. Yeah, uh-huh. So, it's it's like that. So, it's basically sound with some audio stuff. So, since it was Halloween, uh, Wells wanted to do something a little spookier. Uh, so, if you know anything about Wells, too, Wells would be would go on from this and get a contract to write, or to direct Citizen Kane, which has been known as one of the best movies ever produced which would come out in 1941, and it was because of his success or because of the sensation of this broadcast. I liked it. Well, okay, y'all should know, Kaylee does not like many movies. Like, just because she, you have a hard time sitting down to watch them, and I do too. But, like, so if you like something or are even moderately okay with it, I know that I could at least watch it myself. So my stance on Citizen Kane is, one, I'm not a film student, and I would see where film students would be really into it. Ugh, excuse me. Two, I want to watch it again before I say yes or no, 100%, 100% for sure. Was it a good movie? Yes. Was it the best movie I ever watched? No. However, I guess because thematically and stuff like that, um, yeah, people really responded to it. And I think in, especially in 1941, the kind of topics and stuff that they cover were very ahead of their time. So, and that seems very on par with what Orson Welles is doing. And yes, I am sorry, the original book was by H.G. Wells, and now the broadcast is being directed by Orson Orson Welles. And if you want to (laughs) get even more confusing, I'm sure people would confuse H.G. Wells for George Orwell. 
Oh, yeah. No. no well, who does 1984 and Animal Farm. And Animal Farm. So we have a lot of things going on here, but just know that H.G. Wells wrote the book and, and Orson, Orson Wells did this broadcast 40 years later. So he wants to do, he wants to shake it up, do something spooky for Halloween. Yeah. And so they settle on doing a World of the Worlds. And actually in its first form, the script for this show was more of your traditional play. They were just going to run through the book Mm -hmm. like you would. And it would, you know, have passing time and it would feel very theatrical in nature. Kind of like you were watching a movie, watching the 2005 movie. (laughs) I mean, you have to be, you have to be animated to keep people engaged when the only media they have is the sound. Yeah. And so it was just going to be your traditional play that just adapted the book for a radio audience straightforward cut and dry and this Mm -hmm. is what the first script looked like eventually they through discussions they realize we only have an hour to do this and significant time passes in the book so they choose instead of doing the whole book they're just going to do the radio or just do the invasion portion of it and have it be like it's happening in real time and this is where they stumble on something great because I listened to most of this, and it's a fantastic I didn't broadcast. Know this. Yeah, so. I've actually never. I didn't know anything about this. Going really? To it, no. And I, oh. I didn't look it up because I wanted to hear yeah. content from you. I didn't know you didn't know about this. Yeah. So, um, so they make. That's the why dis- I had you pick the picture this week for yours. Okay. So I was like, I don't. I saw it was like Tom Cruise or something, and I was like, no. I'm like, I don't think that's what Kaylee's talking about. So that's why no. I was like, Kaylee, send me the picture you want me to use on the Twitter. Yes. So yeah, you're probably seeing stuff in the movie, but. Uh, <laughs> so they make the decision to okay, we're just gonna do the alien invasion. Okay. And then they make, wouldn't it, then they, I, I can I can imagine the thought process. Wouldn't it be cool if we make it seem like an actual, like, breaking news oh, event my gosh. that aliens are invading? So, <laughs> they, like I said, the first script was just traditional play. And they, because of their runtime, they decided to just, you know, do that. So, they, this is our first instance of your mockumentary style. Iconic. Which, of course, would be adapted a million times, and most iconically, I in my book at least, Blair Witch in the 1990s, which would also, because they presented it... As a documentary. As a real documentary, found footage, and so that also freaked people out. Um, How did these poor people already going through the Depression, and now they're just, like, hearing... They're like, oh my god, <laughs> we can't catch a break, no, the aliens are here! <laughs> it's 2020, yeah. but as a broadcast. Um, so... And what made it even more realistic is the show did not have any sponsors. Again, the Mercury Theater was only around for a couple months at this point, so they didn't have any significant sponsors. So they weren't cutting to commercial breaks. Oh my gosh. They were just doing it. They were having the play. And what made it even more real is it had been pretty standardized at this time that radio broadcast, uh, every 30 minutes the station would have like a check-in. Like, you're on CBS or whatever. Um, Just that kind of stuff. But... Orson Welles convinced them to delay that so they didn't get their normal check-in that they were, like, looking for of, like, is this really happening? Like, no, we'll know at, like, 8.30. And they didn't know. These poor people! It was really just set up, I mean, genius move. Like, this guy knew what he was doing. Marketing out the wazoo. (laughs) I know. Like, this is impressive that they were able to, like, put this together. Yeah. So, that's all the background on it. Now we're going to move on to the script. So... As I said, I did listen through most of the broadcast, mm-hmm. and I was actually surprised because 
there is a pretty significantly long intro to this. I would say at least five to six minutes. Um, Explaining what they're going to do or just... No, it was like, oh, now you're listening to a broadcast of War of the Worlds put on by Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater. So then there's like the generic station stuff. Yeah. Just kind of intro into what's happening. And then Orson Welles himself gets on and does this like little blurb at the beginning where he's talking about oh, we now know that humans are, you know, while we were living our lives, normally we were being watched by aliens, blah, blah, blah. And he's setting the scene for what's happening because he's setting the scene saying that this broadcast is happening sometime in the future, looking back on 1939. Okay. So it's like a recording of... (laughs) So when he does his little speech at the beginning, he is in the future looking back on an event that happened in 1939. Okay. And the broadcast itself, like the breaking news, the fake mockumentary style stuff, Mm -hmm. was supposed to be like the recording taken from that day. Gotcha. And then he is introing that recording, and then the recording is what happens. So it's a little convoluted, especially because (laughs) it's supposed to be happening in 1939, according to them. Yeah. But at this point... The actual broadcast was being broadcast in 1938. Well, it makes sense, though, because then yeah. you're like, they know what's coming. Like, yeah, exactly. So it was supposed to be him looking back, but also... Uh, Everyone listening, looking forward. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like, oh, my gosh. So <laughs> it's a little confusing, but I, I, I guess it... Yeah, I, I guess followed. the setup works for what they were trying to do. So it was a pretty long five to six minutes intro where you're like, okay, this is a play. This feels more traditionally like... Something you would hear on an audio book or, yeah. you know, a listening medium. But <laughs> unless you were there at the top of the hour, you wouldn't miss this. Ah. So. <laughs> most of the listeners, listeners actually missed this. Because at the same time, an hour before the 7 o'clock block, there was on NBC... There was the very famous comedian Edgar Bergen and his, uh, what's it called? Ventriloquist. Ventriloquist act, which, why would you do that over the radio? I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't matter. (laughs) And his dummy, Charlie McCarthy. And this was a very popular show. And that ended at 8.12. So all those people switched over from the ventriloquist show to just in time to miss just the intro. in time to miss the intro and be like oh my god aliens are invading <laughs> um, so yeah so again this uh broadcast happens at on October 30th at 8 at 30th at 8 p.m. and and, and one thing I wanted to mention when I was listening through the like little intro that Wells himself does is because he's setting it up as 1939. And so he's like, oh, in 1939, the war threat has passed and all of our men are back at work. Whoops. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, call on that flag on that play. Yeah. Ooh. I, wishful thinking there, buddy, but that's <laughs> not what happens. Um, and then there was also some stuff about how humans were just doing their silly little tasks, which <laughs> when there was like aliens I looking know. at them and how there was like higher intelligence beings and all this stuff. It was, it was pretty funny intro. Um, it's worth a listen to, even if you don't want to listen to the rest of them. So yeah, like I said, the listeners apparently missed this intro because <laughs> they were listening to this ventriloquist act, no. which again, radio is not the best. <laughs> 
I digress. So, the play starts after um, Wells does his little uh, kind of short intro. They start with the weather report, and then they lead into kind of a generic sounding uh, what CBS would normally broadcast if they were doing kind of what it sounded like at the start of the play itself. So, they say... Okay, now we're going to go to an orchestra that is playing in the Meridian Room of the Hotel Park Plaza in L.A. So this was set up to just sound like that they're just broadcasting from this orchestra that's Mm -hmm. having a concert. And periodically, as they go through, like, this is breaking events, they'll fade back to the orchestra, creating a real sense of, like, creating that realism. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first breaking coverage comes in. And they are speaking to this astronomer from Princeton who would become a main character later. I'm not going to go into the whole story, the whole Mm -hmm. plot line, uh, just to kind of set the scene. Uh, And he explains that, breaking news, there's been weird explosions on the surface of Mars, right? Okay. So then they go back to the ballroom where they have this orchestra playing. And uh, they play for a couple minutes and then they interrupt again. Hmm. And they explain there's a meteor 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 that has landed in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. And then they go back to the ballroom and say something. And then they go to breaking coverage again and say, wait, this is not a meteor. Something weird is happening. Oh. And then they start describing like tentacles and stuff like that emerging from whatever spacecraft has landed. And then this escalates. And so, and and they do little things that really make it sound real. Like they have at one point, they like they're interviewing a witness and the reporter, quote unquote reporter is like, okay, step up to the mic. Oh, say that louder. Louder still. So it's it's, so it's in, it, it completely it they really make it seem authentic like this is a breaking live coverage event. Oh my gosh! Of aliens invading. So then, at, at Grover's Mill, New Jersey, Mill, New Jersey, eventually they <laughs> the aliens come out of the ship and just start destroying everything, <laughs> oh right? <my> gosh. And so, <laughs> and then once they destroy everything in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, then they go to other sightings in chicago and st louis so people are like aliens are invading everywhere (laughs) um and so that's how the story like unfolds and then you know in the original book too they eventually take over so in the story they eventually take over yeah and then at the end you know it's uh they close it out and oh it was a play haha fun halloween (laughs) um but the thing is wells had no idea that people were going to perceive it oh well i haven't even gotten to so (laughs) this is iconic i'm yeah, so for a long time, people believed that there were people, because of this broadcast, like, going out into the streets, panicking, like, breaking windows, just rioting. Oh, like, no. Like, <laughs> oh, no. having heart, heart attacks. There's rumors that people might have killed themselves because they were so afraid that oh, aliens were invading. This is not the case now we know that. But it's like, really interesting because it was apparently supposed to have caused this mass hysteria. So much so that newspapers for the next few days say Wells broadcast causes mass hysteria, people on the streets, stuff like that. And these headlines are run all over the country. Like, how did he not see that coming? How did the broadcast company not see that coming? I know. And that's actually, so people, a lot of people complain to the federal uh, something commission, the FCC. 
Is it Federal Communications? Something like that. And they're like, hey, this, they needed to be more careful about this. Like, this is causing people to freak out. And I think ultimately the decision of the SEC was, well, this technically doesn't go against the rules. But yes, we agree that stations need to be more cautious about what they air. But again, this is the first mockumentary type thing. That's huge. So they didn't know. They were like, oh, it's just a little prank. Like, yeah. oh, this is kind of fun. This is, we're thinking outside the box. Also, you know? like, hit mass hysteria. You would think on Halloween people would be like, oh, there's something a little on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, mass hysteria really do sweep you up. Uh-huh. So by the end of the broadcast, rumors were flying. We had people calling up newspaper offices, calling the police, asking if everything's okay. And they're convinced that even though they couldn't look out their window and see the panic in their city, that it was happening everywhere else. Well, you know, I'm in Houston, Texas, and the aliens aren't here yet, but they have to be in Chicago, like the broadcast said, and people are on the streets panicking. (laughs) Um, So, like I said, newspapers uh, publish extremely sensationalized reports about the, quote, mass hysteria that, uh, and claim there are people on the streets writing and all this kind of crazy stuff. And actually, in the podcast I listened to, they kind of mentioned it. They're like, we don't know if what the newspapers were doing was necessarily as sensationalized as we believe. Mm -hmm. Because imagine if you're sitting at a newspaper office and then, you know, at the phone bank. And then all of a sudden, all these phones start calling. Just lights up. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God, something crazy is happening. So to you, even though it might not be a small portion of the listening population who are calling in, to you, that's still significantly more response than, right. you know, well, and that population the ventriloquist is, show got. Yeah, yeah. And the population that is calling in is going to be the very hysterical ones that are very invested and convinced. Yeah, exactly. So it's not so much that they were intentionally being misleading, just... Because that's the bias they were kind of dealing with. Yeah. And I should mention that it's estimated to um, be around 6 million people who are listening to the oh broadcast. My gosh. And uh, <laughs> I'll get no. into it a little. And I'll actually get into this later uh, right now. But real quick. So like I said, there are people, rumors of people fleeing cities, having heart attacks, or even committing suicide. But none of this is really confirmed. <laughs> it's all, again, very sensationalized. This story is very funny. So likely this story would have been more just kind of a mere blip on the entertainment radar. It might've been important to like film bros and stuff. Yeah. And I actually kind of admire Orson Welles for this, this ingenuity more than Citizen Kane ingenuity. Honestly. Yeah. Um, just because of how originally it was, but it was picked up by the social psychologist called Hadley Cantrell in the years following. So Hadley Cantrell studied radio and social response to radio and so, obviously, this broadcast was, like, really interesting yeah. and intriguing to him. However, he conducted his research in the most <laughs> unreliable way. Oh, no. So, there is this thought that of the six million people who were listening, at least one million people thought it was real enough to go out into the streets and panic and do all that kind of stuff. Mm. This comes from this guy. Let me tell you how he got the statistic. He went to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. So the town mentioned, who was arguably the most affected and would be the most freaked out. Right. Pulled 135-ish people. Oh, no. Asked each of those people, hey, did you think the broadcast was real? Were you scared of it? If they said no, they were cut out of the survey. What the? 
before he even started asking questions. That is not good academia. So when he was left, there was about 100 people left. And of those 100 people, about a sixth of the people from those 100 people said, yes, I was scared enough to like want to flee the city. So in the most scared, arguably, population, he literally asked them before he even conducted his survey Bro. if they were scared and cut them out if they weren't. So as <laughs> and then he conflated this one town to the experience across the whole country. Uh. So this is why we think this broadcast called caused such mass hysteria, right? So that was the leading thing forever. So people look back on it in the 80s and the 90s and we're like, right. wow, people were crazy. They were so silly. How could they be fooled by something like that? You right. know, we were just so stupid back then, blah, blah, blah. But that's not necessarily the case. So in the 2010s, then we go back basically completely in the other direction, theory-wise of, not really theory-wise, but just how yeah. we perceive this event. And uh, be, this event is so significant to history because for so long we thought that people were literally flooding out into the streets because they didn't have the media literacy skills to believe that, or to not, to be able to understand that this was fake. Right. And so that's why it was talked about so significantly for so long is because we're like, wow, this is a really interesting thing for like social psychologists to look at. And it's all from this one guy's statistic who just completely botched yeah. all of that stuff. So I'm not sure uh, where these other theories came up, but basically the revisionist version of this is actually no one was, um, <laughs> no one was, no one was worried. No one was scared. It's everyone really knew, ex everyone knew exactly what was happening. It was the newspapers. Uh. The newspapers sensationalized this because they wanted to kind of de platform radio and they wanted to just launch this smear campaign on radio because it was, again, like I said earlier, their first real competitive medium. So they saw the chance and they, again, might have gotten like two or three calls and were like, was this real? And they saw the chance to de dethrone radio, who's quickly on the rise. And um, so they seized it and they were like, we're going to launch this, this basically smear campaign. Of course. And uh, try to, you know, get our place back as like in that first reliable news, news source spot. But again, just kind of like with uh, Hadley Cantrell, this is completely unfounded. There's no solid evidence. Solid evidence of this happening. This is like completely conjecture. Of course, like people just making stuff up because they're like, no, like it has to be something the radio's doing. So uh, even though they claim to be like the smart and enlightened version of the story, really, what Ugh. proof do we have? Media elitism. What <laughs> I know, like, what proof do you have that proves your side of or your version of events any more than right. Hadley Cantrell? At least he tried to conduct a <laughs> survey. You know, publish his methods, however awful they were. Yeah, I know. And, like, he did something, and you're just thinking of things. Yeah. So, from the 2010s until pretty recently, that was that was a, another really dominant narrative of what happened. Like, oh, it was just the newspapers. You yeah. know, not, nothing really happened. People were just like, oh, it's funny. You know, Halloween spooky. Yeah. So... And that's why I was kind of hesitant to say, like, what happened earlier, because it is such a mixed yeah. bag. So, as with so many things in history, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And ultimately, this guy, A. Brad Schwartz, who's a researcher, uh, would conduct, in my opinion, and I think in your opinion too, Kat, and everyone will listen to, is the most reliable research that we have on this topic. Oh, no. 
So what he does is he actually uses primary sources. Wow. Which, crazy, right? What a revolutionary idea. History research using primary sources. What? <laughs> um, if you don't know what primary sources are, by the way. Yeah. Primary sources are the physical artifacts that were uh, left behind by the people in the stories. Yes. So it might be one of Marie Antoinette's letters mm-hmm. or something like that. That's from her primary perspective. Perspective. I think of primary as the first. So the first yeah. person that experienced it, it's theirs. The, that first person who was there on the scene, who was yeah. there doing whatever. A secondary source is the second person who heard it from that first person or uh-huh. who heard about it from their mom or something like that. And then a tertiary source is... Another step removed. Another step removed. So, I, I, have we reached textbook? Yeah. Yeah, so your textbooks that are recounting these events. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of the history sources. Most reliable history sources will deal with primary sources. Yeah. So, Secondary if you really have to. Yeah, and at this time that's a lot of... Um, you can look at newspapers, but journals, um, letters. diaries, letters. Yeah, and that's exactly what this guy, A. Brad Schwartz, uh, used. He used the letters that are were kept in the University of Michigan archives that were sent in to the Mercury Theater Company and Orson Welles, and along with some of the, or the CBS, the broadcasting, uh, broadcasting station why am i having a hard time with that (laughs) so he uses these letters that were kept in this archive to actually look at what people were feeling wow imagine actually looking (laughs) if anyone ever nails on you for like tweeting or doing a lot of stuff just tell them that you're creating primary resources for your future trust me people 200 years from now will love that yeah (laughs) tweet all you want guys take all the selfies post all your tiktoks yeah (laughs) so cat knows (laughs) i do i saw your today Oh, the one about eating mummies? Yes. <laughs> That's a fun one. That's a good one. Um, yeah. That would be a good, good topic. I was surprised. I saw that TikTok. Oh, and I was I'm writing like, it down now. Why okay. is she not saving that for an episode? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so. Again, this, like, just because we don't have these phone calls and stuff of people calling in to newspapers and everything, this is, in the 21st century, the best representation of the response that we can look at. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like I said earlier, most people who know how to study history would agree that it's the most reliable information we have on the subject. So what Schwartz found in these letters is a wide range of reactions. We have every everything from people saying that I was so scared that I got me and my husband got our last $6 together and Whoa. fled New York City. And it was only until someone on the train showed me the, the slot oh, time no. slot for War of the World CBS. No. That I believed that aliens weren't invading. So we have that like drastic end to people saying that People writing it and saying that people who believed it should be, quote, sterilized and disenfranchised no. because of how stupid they were. We don't talk about sterilization. Oh, especially after the war. <laughs> we don't talk about sterilization. The, the war that came less than three years later is the reason we do not joke about sterilization anymore, guys. Yeah, we... I. But, like, the thing is, is, like, and especially... I mean, even in 38, sterilization has been an issue. Oh, it no, yeah, Especially <laughs> among, like... African-American communities and stuff like yeah. that. My brain, because of my genocide mind, went straight to... Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, 
like concentration camp. But it, so, it just shows yeah. like how dramatic these reactions were from I fled New York City to, to these like, people are so stupid they shouldn't live in our society <laughs> because they believe this and because they were like a risk to if something actually happened they would be the ones like panicking in the streets and that's and it not what we show. need. People never change. They have always <laughs> been petty. And yeah, and then there were some people in the middle saying, "Yeah, it was kind of spooky, but I knew it was fake." <laughs> I had, it's like a horror movie. I had nightmares at night, but <laughs> I dreamed of the aliens coming to take me, but yeah. Fine. So it's, <laughs> so it was really interesting how long it took just for people to look at these records we were sitting in an archive. Like why? That's sad. I don't know. I guess it's just because it was such a fun story that no one really wanted to look into it more. Yeah. But just I let guess, it be urban myth. Yeah. And I guess it was that kind of revisionist 2010s version of, oh, it was the newspapers where it took this guy, A. Brad Schwartz. To be like, I'm gonna look into what actually happened. That's a, um, that's a fascinating historiography study too. That's, right. For those of y'all don't, who don't know, historiography is the study of the history of history. So like, yeah. how how this is a history, prime how historians the, how have, historians have interpreted history and how that mm-hmm. how how they've conducted historical research throughout the throughout the years. Yeah, and this is a prime example from historians thinking, oh, it was a terrible thing to historians now thinking, yeah. or in the last 10 years thinking it was nothing, and, and now I think, coming to the middle ground. you know, if we're going to talk about historiography, I really think that this interpretation is very similar to how history is being interpreted currently. Yes. A mixed bag of, yeah. like, there's... We're polarized and in the middle. Yeah, there's a bit of truth to like everything right. and everything happened just because of how many people were involved and everything. Which is weird coming off the tales of cancel culture. Yeah. Of like being like, there are some things in history that are irrefutably awful, but like mm-hmm. it's weird coming out of cancel culture into a time when historians especially are trying to look at things and go like, okay, we can't say yes or no to. Yeah. And I mean all, like the first, the I the first history class I took in college, the one of the first things that my professors told me was never use the word Never use absolutes. Yeah. Never speak in absolutes in your history papers. Yeah. You can use most and you can use almost none, mm-hmm. but never say all or none. Yeah. Because that's almost never the case. Yeah. Unless you're talking about something ethical, in which case, yes, slavery is awful. Like, Holocaust yeah. is awful. That's <laughs> stuff you are allowed to be absolute on. But, yeah. like, interpretations. But we're you can't about. say every single Victorian woman wore a corset. Yeah. Because that's not did. true. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a lot of the articles that I saw really, and so did this guy, Abrad Schwartz, made the connection to modern day because if people could believe that aliens were invading, it makes sense that even in our more media literate society, people fall for things like fake yeah. news Yeah, and how we really need to work on our critical thinking skills and, mm. you know, you can't. What's, What's really happening here? The media's job is to convey it to you. It is your job to interpret that and analyze yeah. it and make it what you will. And again, this was a lot less intentionally harmful than a lot of fake news is. Because right. dealing with stuff with like deep fakes and everything, those things mm-hmm. are meant to convince you that they're real. Yeah. So it makes sense that we kind of have this legacy of believing what we, what we shouldn't can. believe. Yeah. So... But yeah, that's my story. It's uh, that's like actually, we said. It's really different from cats, but it's a really fun piece of history. I'm that, glad you went second. I yeah, think, I I think I do more tragedies than I think I tend to do yeah, more tragedies you do. than you. So it's probably good that we consistently have you going second. <laughs> yeah, because more often than not, I'm probably gonna be she's like, gonna be let's upper. talk about pirates. <laughs> yeah, she's gonna be the upper to my downer. Um, but 
That was really cool. And I've never actually, I heard the name. I'd never known really? what it was. Yeah. You did, I didn't, I figured you knew. That's why I, I like. Know, being a theater kid, you'd think I would, but like. Yeah. Especially. I, I really didn't. Yeah. No. And, um, I mean, I've heard about it every now and then, and it could just because I took a film class where we talked about Orson Welles and. Yeah. Because I knew about the World of the Worlds broadcast, but I had to look into it just a little bit deeper because I presented on who Orson Welles was. Yeah. But it was mainly in the context of Citizen Kane and not this broadcast. So I didn't mm-hmm. know too much until I did these notes. But I knew that, like, people thought that there were people, like, running in the streets. Wow. Um, huh. Yeah. So, fun little bit of history. And uh, I, think, I thought it was worthy of mention. No, that was fantastic. Thank Thanks. you. Yes, I loved it. I took a bow. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, hopefully that... Made everyone feel a little bit better after Kat's story. Yeah. I we also not to discredit Kat, because like we said, we no, have no, no, to no. talk about those things. Some people are better suited for hearing about tragic events, some people are not, and it is good to give them an upper after the downer. Yeah, well, just in general, no one wants to be left off on that note, really. Yeah. So, so we're glad we could try to give you something fun to giggle at after yeah. you at that. And thank you I for... think honestly the funniest part is how this guy did the survey, but Oh I know. That's the <laughs> academic in you. That is, that is. Yeah. As someone who's done history research, it's like Oh, uh, <laughs> worst choice ever. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. I think this is going to be our longest episode ever. So. Or one of them. We yeah. keep saying that we're going to be around an hour, but we keep going consistently to an like hour and a half. Today required some commentary, especially on Triangle. Yes. Like, you can't talk about an event like that and then not talk after about an event like that. Yeah, we had important. to um, unpack that. Yeah. But <sighs> if you have suggestions or ideas, like... Just like I had no clue what War of the Worlds was, um, there are plenty that neither of us know about. Plenty. So if you've got weird ones you want us to do, tweet at us, email at us, uh, email at us. <laughs> yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, our email is... This is not a history lecture at gmail.com. And our Twitter is... T-I-N-A-H-L podcast. Yep. That's at T-I-N-A-H-L podcast. I uh, I just, I just yeah. really want to make it clear. That no, that's good. Name. That's good. Um, Kat consistently, uh, me, for consistently. <laughs> I was like, who's Kat? Is there, is there a third person? <laughs> I consistently forget how to use hashtags, but like I'm trying to get us out there. Your following us does help us a lot. So thank yeah. you. Tell your friends. Review us on Apple Podcasts. Review us on Apple Podcasts, please. We, you don't have to tell everyone how depressing I am. <laughs> <laughs> We've really enjoyed getting to do this and we really hope that you're enjoying it with us and we would love to hear from you and or have you tell other people about us because mm-hmm. we want a reason to keep doing this yeah. <laughs> I mean I'm gonna make her keep doing it anyway but like it, it, it's nice it was to have my idea I started it but Kat's gonna keep it going yeah. <laughs> we, we had a weird mutual agreement in that car that day we did yeah you were like lol lol just just kidding we would never actually do this and I looked at you and I was kind of like but what if I'd been thinking about it as well <laughs> I know it was so embarrassing I was like Kat I want to tell you something, <laughs> but I don't want to tell you this. <laughs> and I think I guessed exactly what you were talking about. Or I think it was like... We were on the way back from the nursery getting plants. I think I was like... <laughs> you were like, wouldn't it be so funny? I was like, should we start a podcast? And I was like, <laughs> and I was like yes, I mean, I've been thinking about it, but I didn't want to say anything because I thought you'd laugh. <laughs> I know. And I think just, you know, because... Kat, she'll admit to it too. She's yeah. the nerdier of the two. Oh, so yes. 
for me to bring up the idea, I think that's how it had to happen. Yeah. But it was funny, like, today, it's just become such a normal part of my life, and I think you've almost slipped up oh, a few times. times. But I, like, you know, my roommates and stuff know, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna go record a couple episodes with Kat, and, like, see you later. And they're like, okay, and it's just become, yeah. like, part of life, yeah. and it seems so normal, like, we were supposed to be doing this, but... yeah. It's fun. It's a great way for us to do history and for us to share it with you. So yeah. thank you for joining. If you did this week, I'll try to do something funner. More fun. Sorry. Funner is not a word. I know. More fun <laughs> next week. More uplifting. We'll find something that does not... I mean, unfortunately, everyone in history dies, but like, hopefully it won't just <laughs> be about death. Yeah. Orson Welles is dead. So... <laughs> it's inevitable. But, but... Yeah. So... Yeah. Anyway, we'll thank you for you. being here yeah. and tuning in for This Is Not a History Lecture. Bye. Bye. Bye.